Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. This episode is sponsored by SIFT, and I just want to take a minute to thank them. They wanted to be the very first sponsor of the Fraudology podcast, even before I had even recorded anything. So their faith and belief in me is something that I really appreciate. And also in this in this podcast, they believe in it. They really are big on education. I heard a merchant the other day say that one of the things they really love about SIFT is that they lead with education first and sales second. And I would definitely agree with that. While we were on the topic of NS8, now that SIFT has integrations available with Magento and Shopify, it's easy to switch to SIFT with just a few clicks. To take advantage of a special free trial offer for NS8 customers, you can visit sift.com slash fraudology. That's F-R-A-U-D-O-L-O-G-Y to learn more. There are some very big companies that use SIFT technology. Uh, You can look on their website to see some of those merchants. I don't know which ones are publicly named, so I'm not going to get in trouble here. But there are some huge ones that use them. And if you are a small merchant using Magento or Shopify, you can now use that same technology too, which is pretty awesome. So uh, definitely visit sift.com forward slash fraudology to learn more about that. And thanks again, Sift, for believing in fraudology and education in the fraud space. We all really appreciate it. What a crazy few weeks to be a fraud fighter. Wouldn't you agree? So in lieu of a what the fraud segment, we're actually going to have this whole episode be a what the fraud segment. I had planned on doing an interview this week, but in part because I forgot to schedule it, that's what happens when you're going in 30 different directions at once, but also because there's a lot that hit the news in the last week and I've just been getting so many questions and I thought the best thing to do would be to kind of put out most of what I know on this podcast episode. Maybe it's just out of sheer convenience for me so I can say, hey, here you go. I already answered all these. But if you are not aware of what I'm talking about, I will touch on that in just a minute. The one other thing I wanted to note is that if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's episode in my interview with Chase Park on refunding fraud as well as buy for you fraud, I highly recommend you do that. Whether that means stopping this podcast and going back to last week's or finishing this episode and going back to that one, I 
I think it's the best one yet. Granted, this is only the fifth episode of this podcast, but we talked about a lot of things that I haven't heard talked about anywhere else. So if you are a fraud fighter or a consumer who's genuinely interested in these things, I highly recommend it. Okay, all of that to say, (laughs) this is um, not fun for me by any means, but there was quite a big shakeup in the fraud technology space over the last two weeks. And I don't always realize that people count on me for the gossip until something like this happens. And then I hear from all kinds of people that I haven't heard from in a while, but I, you know, really don't mind it at all. And as it so happens, I I did have several pieces, but there were things that, you know, we didn't know uh, until a week after. So I'm basically going to read the most recent Forbes article about this to kind of set the stage. And then I will provide the perspectives of enterprise merchants, other providers, NSA employees of the ones that I've spoken with, as well as my own perspective. So that's kind of how we're going to dive into this. So here is the Forbes article. The CEO of a startup that sold fraud prevention software is facing fraud charges after he was arrested Thursday by the FBI in Las Vegas. Adam Rogas, I hope I'm saying that right, Rogas, who abruptly resigned from NS8 earlier this month, is accused of misleading investors who poured $123 million to his company earlier this year, a deal in which he allegedly pocketed more than $17 million. Adam Rogas was the proverbial Fox guarding the hen house, acting Manhattan U.S. attorney Audrey Strauss said in a press statement. While raising over $100 million from investors for his fraud prevention company, Rogas himself allegedly was engaging in a brazen fraud. NSA launched in 2016 to provide online fraud detection and prevention software for small businesses. More than 200 NS8 employees were laid off last week after executives told them the company was under investigation by the SEC for fraud. The news was startling for many, considering the company had announced a $123 million Series A funding round in June, led by global VC firm Lightspeed Venture Partners. In a statement, NS8 said that its board has learned that much of the company's revenue and customer information had been fabricated, fabricated, by Mr. Rogas, who he was actually the acting CEO and CFO of the company, as well as the founder. I'm adding that. The company added that no other employees or stakeholders have been charged and that it is cooperating with federal investigators. In a previous statement to Forbes, Rogas said that he left the company for family and personal reasons. He then alleged that NS8's board and current management have used an SEC investigation that began in November 2019 to insinuate a more insidious narrative. I did not walk away with the company's money. Rogas is facing multiple charges, including securities fraud and wire fraud in separate complaints filed by the Justice Department and Securities and Exchange Commission. Thursday, charges by the Justice Department carry penalties up to 20 years in prison. He is expected to face a judge in Nevada on Friday, which it was this past Friday, September 18th. Uh, I'm going to just kind of go on a little bit because I do think it's important. In its complaint filed in the Southern District of New York, the Justice Department alleged that from January 2019 to February 2020, between 40 and 95 percent of NSA's assets were made up. During that period, the agency alleged Rogas presented doctored bank statements to reflect over 40 million in fictitious revenue. 
In the SEC's complaint, the agency alleged that Rojas Rogas, I'm saying his name 400 different ways in this, I apologize, <laughs> doctored NSA's bank statements to show millions of dollars in payments from customers before sending the falsified statements and revenue figures to NSA's finance department. The agency further alleged that in at least two securities offerings, NSA and Rogas provided investors and prospective investors with the false financial statements. It seems ironic that the co-founder of a company designed to prevent online fraud would engage in fraudulent activity himself, said FBI Assistant Director William F. Sweeney Jr. in a statement. We've seen far too many examples of unscrupulous actors engaging in this type of criminal activity. So there are other articles about this. This was you know one that just kind of gave the high level, and I appreciated that they also included the CEO's statement just because I think it's important to reflect all sides and be fair to all sides. Granted, there's a lot of evidence that he did this, uh, including in the FBI documentation that was released publicly at the time of his arrest actually showed the doctored bank statements, and it was quite damning. The real statement said that they, the company had about $58,000 in customer revenue in their bank account. And the statement that he provided staff as well as investors said that there was about, it was over 50 million in the bank account. So there were a lot of made up charges for, I think it was like $99,999. I don't know. But the point of it is, is that there was a, you know, this is the, this is the headline in regular news. It's not super common for online fraud industry news to make it to uh, mainstream media. And this was not the way I think any of us wanted to do that. So I, I don't know, it just, it, this whole thing shook the community and a lot of information was provided kind of in drips for the first week. So my, the very first time I heard of NS8 was the first time I think a lot of fraud fighters in the enterprise side had heard of them. And that is at uh, one of the largest industry conferences last year. It was in Las Vegas. So I assume that that's, you know, made it easy for the CEO to exhibit there. It was just one man in a booth, a pretty simple booth. And I remember walking by it and thinking, huh, I haven't heard of those guys before, but I had so many meetings and um, I really feel like those conferences, gosh, I miss them right now, are kind of like high school reunions with the people that you like. So I didn't have time to check in, um, but I've heard from other people who did stop by the booth that after they left, you know, it's customary to get follow-up emails, usually from sales reps or maybe, you know, a nice marketing email saying, hey, these are the three things we learned at this conference to kind of stay in the minds of their prospects. But in this case, it was just anyone who stopped by their booth got an auto email that just said, thanks for stopping by our booth. For more information, contact sales at ns8.com, I believe was the email address, or it was sales at something. And... (laughs) One very large merchant said, I'm, I'm an enterprise company. I'm a very big company. I don't email sales at <laughs> like you email me. Uh, and I joked with them. I said, well, don't they have to buy you a steak dinner first? And he said, yeah, you need to buy me a steak dinner before you even know my name, which was obviously a joke. But at the same time, it's just very weird because I, I don't think anyone like that kind of email doesn't really intrigue you about 
like a new product or anything. So we kind of heard about it and then just, you know, didn't really think about it or anything until April when the press release came out that they raised, I thought it was 124 million. This article says 123. I've also seen 126. So I don't know, but a lot of money with a 400 million valuation. And that really caused a lot of shockwaves in the industry. There were several people that emailed me and if they were on the vendor side, they really wanted to know like, gosh, are these guys competition for me? Because of the valuation, they thought there must be something big about the product or, you know, something that's going to disrupt the industry. And merchants were asking me, should I be checking these guys out? Like, what do they have that's different than others? And so I actually, you know, reached out to uh, one or two of their representatives um, after April because it seemed like they really didn't have that many staff members until January when they got their first round of financing and then a very large group of employees. I want to say it's got to be over 100 were hired in June, I believe, when the you know investment money cleared and, and you know, could do interviews and postings and all that. So it takes time. So once those sales reps kind of hit the ground, that was when a lot of people heard about them. There were a lot of emails. There were some uh, questionable and uh, aggressive sales tactics, to say the least. I actually wrote a LinkedIn post about this several weeks ago, and I didn't name the company. But and, and it was definitely a lesson that I wanted more vendors to learn because not all of them are you know blameless in this for sure. But I on one of the merchant calls that I had facilitated, like an entire call was dedicated to talking about some of the sales tactics of NS8 salespeople. And it was pretty hardcore. There was one marketplace merchant who they contacted their clients to contact the merchant. It was like a platform marketplace to tell them that they had a lot of fraud and they absolutely needed this service. But what was interesting about all of the communication is there really wasn't any details. It wasn't, hey, we have this product that provides X. It was just, we can solve all your problems. And sometimes they would contact CEOs or CFOs. So go above like skip level, the fraud manager and and it, that doesn't go over well either. I know that that's a tactic that has worked for some, but I wouldn't recommend it, especially when there is a fraud manager, because nine times out of 10, they're considered the gatekeeper. And so you're going to have to get their buy-in eventually. And if they feel like you went over their heads to even get in the door, you probably won't get the buy-in. So there definitely wasn't, you know, they're very pushy. There was just a lot of like emails over and over again and that kind of thing. And and what I know now, and I, I know that there are going to be sales reps from NS8 listening to this, and I don't want you to, you know, feel called out or embarrassed or anything. I know that you guys were doing the job that you were told to do. I think it was very important to the CEO, like this is all in hindsight, but for it to make it look like you guys were doing a lot and kind of just make a lot of noise. And I know from, you know, sales reps or, or people, you know, uh, around the sales process at NS8 that they didn't feel supported. They didn't feel like there was a lot of marketing material or training on fraud or their product. And so I, I think it was really frustrating for these sales reps to not ever feel like they got anywhere, that they got any traction. But the reasons for that were because they didn't know their stuff. And if you're going to try to sell to the largest companies in the world, the largest online companies in the world, you need to at least know what your product does how it works and you know what their pain points are that is 
the minimum expectation that they have. I mean, think about how many vendors there are in the space right now. And, you know, think of how many times you've emailed one company times that by a hundred or 200 and that's how many emails they get. So, you know, if you don't have a nugget of information that intrigues them about how you can help them, it's going in their, you know, trash bin in their inbox. I don't know of any salespeople that got any sales. Now that might've happened, but I don't believe any enterprise level companies. So what I mean by enterprise, at least by my definition is, is typically the name brand companies. They do at least bare minimum, like a hundred million a year. And a lot of them have their own internal fraud prevention expert. So I think that, you know, for some small companies, I know that you know, NS8 was a, was a good product. I've talked to, or I've heard from a vendor who has had several NS8 customers go to them. And they said that it's been a little bit of an adjustment to go to a different, you know, business model and different systems, but that they have said that they really appreciated the UI, the user interface, because it was very easy to understand. But that's really the the needs that that product met really were more meant for very small companies, almost micro merchants. They it wouldn't have transitioned to e marketplace or enterprise at all. And I think that that had to be really frustrating for the sales reps. And I just want to say like, I mean, obviously you guys were conned as well. You were playing a part. You just didn't know it. It was important to have it look like there was a lot of flurry of activity to the investors, I would imagine. And it, it's really awful that you played this part for someone else's benefit. And now you and your families are really scrambling to figure out what's next. There were 235 employees of NS8 as of, you know, two weeks ago, a little over two weeks ago now. And now there are, I think, 35. I know at least 200 were laid off. And I believe the remaining ones are, are there to kind of wrap up business and get the existing customers onto new platforms, et cetera, and, you know, close out the books and stuff. I don't believe that they're going to resurrect it. I could be wrong. So I want to be sure that, you know, I just, this is the information I have right now and what's also been publicly available in articles, et cetera. So here's the other thing that was kind of strange. I actually had one of them reach out to me thinking that I was a merchant because I had been on a webinar with another merchant and I, you know, wrote back and was like, ah, not them, you know, blah, blah. And uh, then I noticed that this person uh, lived in the same state as me. So I said, hey, you know, are you guys located here? I'm you know, always interested in learning about new products. And I just thought it was weird that they didn't push a demo on me or really want me to learn anything about their company. And it may be because they didn't know my position in the industry. And I'm really okay with that. I'm just not used to vendors in the space not wanting me to know what their product does. Usually I'm getting the uh, first version before any prospective merchants see it. Like if there's a new product release or I'm having to turn them down because I need to focus on, you know, my business and the other educational things that I do. So it just was really weird to me, but I was like, okay, one less, you know, one less company to really learn about or anything. And that doesn't mean that I don't love to learn about them. I really do. I just, I don't know. There was just something weird. I, the website seemed very generic. It seemed very, um, just using all the buzzwords, but I couldn't really understand what it did or, you know, what problems it solved. 
other than claiming that it solved all of them for the most part, which um, is always a red flag in fraud because there is no silver bullet despite many people, many smart people investing millions of dollars into this industry trying to find that silver bullet. It doesn't exist. So all that kind of happened. But then, you know, like I said, there was a call with merchants that, you know, one of the merchants asked about them. And then another one said that they'd had, you know, a horrible experience. And another one said, oh my gosh, I have like 23 emails from, you know, one of them in a couple weeks or whatever it was. And so there was that conversation. But then, you know, we all go on with our lives until September 10th. And I got a text from a dear friend of mine who now works for a vendor, but has been in the merchant space for a long time. I've known them for almost 10 years at this point. And they asked if I had heard anything going on at NS8. And I was like, no. But then I did a quick look at who in my network worked there. And I noticed that all of them had the little green emblem uh, that's or the little green filter that's going around on LinkedIn right now that says hashtag open to work. So I was like, huh, that's kind of bold if they have a job already. And then I clicked on a few profiles and every one of them had posted that day with a very similar phrase. And it was actually really heartbreaking. It said, due to circumstances outside of my control, I am no longer employed and I'm looking for uh, new employment opportunities or something very similar to that. It was always the very first line and then they customized it. So we knew something was up, but not sure what. The next morning I got sent a link to Twitter where a family member of an employee claimed that the CEO had run off with all the money and was out of the country. So for the first week, that was kind of the assumption until the Justice Department documents were released. And it turned out that the CEO, who was also the CFO, which anyone who's on the embezzlement fraud side, like if you have a CFE, a Certified Fraud Examiner, uh, certification that uh, a lot of those fraud professionals are more like forensic accountants and and spot fraud that way. They may not be official accountants, but they're they're really looking for internal fraud. I would assume that that would be a red flag for you guys, just because you know it's kind of a conflict of interest to be in charge of the money and in charge of the business and the growth, etc. But the way I understand it is that the bank accounts that had the numbers fudged or, you know, cooking the books, so to speak, as they say, that was for the bank account for customer revenue. So that wasn't the money that, you know, came in from the investors. I do know from a previous article that the CEO stated that they were burning four to six million a month in operating expenses. I would imagine with so many sales reps that that's pretty easy to do. So that's, you know, another sign, but you know, no one else would know that except for the investors and their banking. But so he didn't have access to that money. However, the 17.5 million that he did get uh, was because of a stock buyout. When the investors uh, did the series A, there was um, a stock buyout option. I, I know there's another term for it, but that's basically what it was. And so he got $17.5 million for his stock in the company, not all the stock, but for the stock that the investors inherited. And that's the, that's the money. So he did not run away with all of the invested money. I just think that that's important to point out because that was a rumor going around for a while. And I honestly thought that that was true myself until all this came up. So I think that's really important to cover is just that, you know, it was trying to make it seem like there were more customers and more revenue coming in. I know at one point 
NS8 had said that they had 2,300 customers, but as the article that I read said, they believe that 40 to 95%, which is a really big range, were made up. And it's just devastating. It's really, I don't think this has ever happened in fraud. I mean, we've certainly seen companies come and go, but never, never to this extent. And so it's, you know, that's definitely caused the gossip machine to go crazy lately. (laughs) So speaking of that gossip machine, so to speak, I heard from several different groups of people that were especially interested or concerned in the story. One was obviously some NS8 employees. They were bewildered and blindsided. And I have nothing but compassion for all of them. I just, you know, I'm... I think we all know the the sting or the shame that in all the you know thinking backwards of you know hindsight being 2020 that comes along whenever you you know if you fall for a scam or or something like that but I couldn't imagine having that be tied to my employment and how I provide for my family so I have the utmost empathy and compassion and want to be sure that I say that I know that you are all doing what you were told especially because I think 95% of the people hired for NS8 did not have any uh, fraud prevention experience or fraud sales experience, at least from the profiles I've seen. I have not looked through all of them. And so, of course, you did what you were told because this is a new industry for you. So some of them said in hindsight that the numbers didn't add up, but that they were so close and, you know, that really had a family atmosphere with the employees that they just kind of you know, didn't really think about it and thought, well, my paycheck keeps getting sold and, you know, I have no reason to not trust the numbers. So I guess they're fine. I think in the coming, in the few weeks before the CEO resigned, there was a little more uh, skepticism, especially in the finance department from what I read in the FBI documentation. But, you know, I, sales is so far from, you know, revenue. They don't always know, like they might know their own numbers, but not total company numbers. They wouldn't have access to that. And honestly, in this case, nobody did except for the CFO and CEO. He was the only one that knew the real balance in the bank account. So another provide another sales rep said that they had zero marketing support or strategic direction beyond dialing for dollars, so to speak, and exhausting their contacts. And, and they didn't like it any more than anyone else did, but that was, you know, what they were told to do. It almost reminds me of that movie Boiler Room. I don't know. It just... It just makes me sad and mad at the same time whenever I think about how much this has impacted. But, you know, they were a close, you know, close-knit family and group. And so they didn't really have a reason to question because they really loved who they worked with. Another thing is they really didn't have any fraud training or knowledge um, other than what they could find online in their own searches. So that was another challenge is that, you know, when you when a sales rep doesn't have any in- industry knowledge, it's really hard to trust them. And everybody wants to be able to trust who they're working with and feel safe, whether that is a consumer with online commerce and in the marketplaces that have trust and safety departments that oversee content and chargeback reduction and promo code abuse and any issues that occur with their members. If there is a real life component to that marketplace, like whether it's riding in a car or staying in someone's home, Uh, or having someone walk your dog. So that's, you know, trust and safety on the online side. But then just in general, I mean, think about the people you choose to work with from, you know, who fixes your car to, 
you know, who provides fraud technology or, you know, payment processing or anything else. I think especially these days more than ever, and because there are, you know, online reviews and so many other sources, it's important for us to feel like we trust the person who's, you know, who we've hired and that we feel safe. And that's not the case when there are, you know, sales reps just like spewing, just saying that they can do it, but they don't really know it. I mean, people have been in fraud for a while. We can tell when people don't know what they're talking about. It's kind of obvious. So then other vendors reached out to me. They had, that was more like out of worry and concern because a lot of them had questions about the due diligence on the, on the valuation. I mean, a $400 million valuation is pretty insane, especially considering what the product actually was, as well as just the fact that, you know, there really weren't that many customers as were claimed. And, and the investment firms that are part of this or tied to this are pretty well known and respected. So, you know, there's been a lot of concerns about the due diligence. There is at least one public article that states, or actually, I think it was even in the, was it in the FBI documentation. I can't remember. I've read everything there is about it that said that EY was the auditor and that they did ask for financial statements as well as they asked for the CEO to log into the bank account through online banking while they were standing behind him. And I'm not sure how, what he did during that time, but obviously they gave it a green light and said that they felt comfortable that they had verified it. Side note, if anyone is putting two and two together, there was another fraud related case to a payment processing company in Germany. I believe it's, it's based in Germany. I'm 90% sure called Wirecard. And that also was a situation of investors trusting auditors and the auditors did not identify the fraud. And that was an even bigger loss. I want to say it was in the billions. So I think the EY is in a lot of hot water. And I mean, it's got to be hard to be an auditor, but I think it's super important these days, especially as the U.S. and other country economies go down, there are always going to be people wanting to take advantage of situations. So I think it's really important for auditors to also have fraud identification training or CFE certification, something like that, so that they can spot these things rather than just making, you know, seeming like, mm, it feels like auditors are just double checking that like all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. They're not really looking for embezzlement. So, or, you know, fraud or, you know, wrong documents. So I could be very wrong. I'm not on that side, but that's just kind of what it seems. So there were lots of questions on that, which I think are very valid. There were concerns about future investments and valuations for their own funding. So there's a lot of startups right now that are, you know, considering their next round of funding and this makes them nervous if there are investors who just say, like, we don't want anything to do with the fraud prevention community. How do we know you're not a fraud yourselves, etc.? So that I think is, you know, that was definitely where they were coming from. Some of them scrambled for um, SEO and Google AdWords. At one point, someone told me, a very reliable source told me that, you know, the search NS8 in Google was going for $66.06. There was basically a, a bidding war between several vendors that have similar connections to larger commerce sites like Shopify, WooCommerce, etc. 
for the smaller merchants and they really wanted to make sure that the customers had a soft place to land. And, you know, several posted their own job openings for employees. I mean, honestly, I have to say, like, I I have heard from several NSA employees that have said that they've felt very supported by the frog community. And that's great to see. I, I really appreciate it. I think, you know, there are definitely some people that I've spoken with recently from NS8 who I think would be great, especially if they're pointed in the right direction and given support and training and some strategy. I think they'd really grow, but that's, you know, that's up to their new employers to do all that. Merchants, like I said earlier, all enterprise merchants, you know, the name brands and all of that. No one I know uh, signed up for this service. Like I said earlier, I didn't see a demo, but someone else I know did. And they were pretty surprised that the actual product itself from NS8 had 11 risk parameters. A risk parameter can be anything from, you know, studying email and phone and address, you know, the different parameters or, you know, dollar value of the item or proximity from, the billing address to the shipping address. Like there's so many different things. So 11 risk parameters for context, every other fraud provider I know has at least hundreds, if not thousands of risk parameters per transaction. So I know that, you know, these risk parameters that NS8 had were very, you know, they were helpful to Shopify merchants, micro merchants who don't have to have really sophisticated fraud tools. They just need some information to see is this risky, is this not? My concern though is that they were aggressively and actively pursuing enterprise merchants that are used to hundreds if not thousands of risk factors and uh, risk parameters and so there's just no comparison. It's it's kind of crazy actually when you think about it. It's almost like quite literally the emperor had no clothes. Like there really wasn't much of a product anyway. And so to see something like that get a $400 million valuation, I mean, it makes my head explode, honestly. Kind of makes me regret, you know, not following through with the chargeback company that I had sketched out uh, using my processes and custom templates several years ago. Because man, I could have gotten some serious funding. (laughs) But for me, money equals pressure. So I that just, yeah, I would have never been able to go down that route. But yeah, it's kind of fun to joke about sometimes, you know, so no one was really, you know, no one really saw the demo except for this one person. He's the only person I, I know that actually saw it. And that was like after he signed an NDA and all this other stuff, because they actually like it was really proprietary information. Uh, I do know, you know, like is really innovative. I do know that there was an element of advertisement fraud that they claimed they were able to solve. I don't know anything about that product. So I just want to make sure that, you know, people know this is, you know, something I heard from a very reliable source, but I wasn't offered a demo, so I could be wrong, but it wouldn't, I mean, I certainly wouldn't think that they would have hundreds of risk parameters at all. And, you know, like I said, most of their companies were, you know, smaller and they needed something, but they didn't need the huge systems that are offered to enterprise merchants. However, I will say there are several companies that enterprise merchants, some of the biggest names in the world use that now have Shopify and and WooCommerce and the others, Magento plugins. So there actually are some really good options now, but 
So also something interesting that I actually just heard today was that at least one merchant, and I'm sure there's several, especially the really big ones, have kind of had some pause after this whole incident and have now are now either they've already asked or they're planning to ask their current fraud providers for their financials especially for some of these really big companies that are public they have to do that due diligence they have to look at the company financials in order to either sign a contract or continue to do business a lot of times on a yearly basis and several of them are thinking huh maybe we should just double check our providers financials uh, so that we don't see them in the news because not only would that be a brand issue for the merchant if it got out that they use that company it would also just be an absolute nightmare if all uh, transaction monitoring uh, just went away or all risk monitoring just went away suddenly I mean you can put something else in place but it can take a little while for the implementation and RFI etc so that's one concern but also I hadn't thought of this before but this merchant had told me that you know their biggest concern beyond that is what happens to their customer data when you know is their customer data just gonna be sitting on a server somewhere and they have no control over it if their provider goes out of business so if you're a provider and you're being asked for this it's you know out of the blue it's probably because of of the situation and I don't blame them for wanting to make sure that they don't you know cause any embarrassment or hardship for their company I mean at the end of the day that is a you know risk professionals job is to you know try to mitigate any risk that comes to the company so there were definitely a lot of a lot of buzz and conversations about this I think one thing that came, became crystal clear is that a lot of merchants and I've said this before on my previous podcast as well as just in other conversations but it was a big red flag for enterprise merchants to have pushy salesmen with no baseline or foundational knowledge of the space or of pain points or anything that was a really big red flag to merchants and I've heard from a few that have said phew I'm really glad I trusted my gut and I do have to say that if you're going to con fraud professionals good luck because we have honed our guts so well that I mean I I don't know what I would do without my intuition it's almost like my radar my sonar and it really serves me well beyond just you know looking at the details of reporting or if I'm you know looking at transaction risk etc if I'm looking at a granular level for a client so I mean we have that going for us (laughs) so now I have a note to venture capital firms as well as private equity firms and I don't know if you're going to listen to this but I do know that over the last five to six years you know fraud and payments as well for online commerce has become kind of sexy I don't really like that term for this kind of thing, but that's, you know, it's been kind of the shiny penny or really interesting because there have been companies that have gotten really big returns. However, I wrote this in all caps on my notes, do your research. It's not enough to have an auditor check the box and just be like, yep, yep, yep. They have their paperwork. Obviously, it's not enough. I mean, I have seen the doctored bank statements, as I stated, and they did look very similar. But if you just looked one layer down, there were a lot of like transaction numbers that were duplicated. There was a lot of weird numbers. Like, why would you have a sale for $30 and then one for $99,999? I mean, it just, there were a lot of discrepancies just even on the one 
you know, transaction report that I saw in the documentation. So I'm sure there was a lot if they had looked and had they been trained. And I think, you know, there's a reason why this case was already, you know, why he was already arrested within a week. It's because it wasn't that sophisticated. But, you know, just don't look at only the financials. I think it's super important to understand how the product compares to the existing marketplace. I use this example in a LinkedIn post, and I think it's the best one I can come up with. You can say that the area of opportunity for, you know, the car business, you know, for people to buy cars is billions or trillions of dollars. But then if you're saying, if you're using that as a justification to sell a 1990s Honda Accord for super cheap, or no, for super expensive, or whatever it is, and say, hey, this is a car, this fills the market need, this is what it is, that's not going to really sell versus a Tesla or a car built in this decade or even in this century. So you're, you know, I think my guess, because I've seen this a lot, is that the the CEO was very good at sales and he was able to, you know, distract them with the area of mar- um, of market opportunity rather than saying, like, we don't even have a product that would even you know, fit in this space. It, it doesn't compare. So I think it's super important for VCs to ask experts about the product, about who the direct competitors are for that specific product, about the industry and how merchants make decisions. These are conversations I have fairly regularly, maybe one to three times a month, depending on the month. I actually had two last week. After this, I think other VCs are starting to learn that they want to do some more due diligence. There are also other companies that will do this for with several different opinions. They'll book one hour calls with lots of people, kind of like I think it's called Guidepoint or GLG, which stands for I wrote it down Gerson, Learman Group. Um, and these I, I'm signed up with them as well. I don't really take a lot of them. I actually got pinged for one today and I just don't have time, but it's an opportunity for people who are experts to sign up and then when there's a investor that's looking to talk to someone with your area of expertise you'll get on the phone with them for an hour answer any questions they have about you know they may say specifically the company they're looking to invest in other times they'll give you a handful that are very similar and ask you to kind of explain or describe each one and and what you think the leader is etc they may ask, you know, who the decision makers are and what that process is like, you know, what pricing is fair, etc. And that I think is super important for anyone who's investing money into this. And I take those super seriously. I wrote a 36 page report for a private equity firm that invested, I don't know if it was an investment or acquired, but anyway, they invested a significant amount of money into a fraud technology that I find pretty promising and they asked me to you know write really a comparative analysis on all of their competitors in the space and how they measured up and it was actually technically a blind one I didn't know which company they were looking to invest in though I was able to narrow it down to about two or three but you know so anyway that you know I'm not this is an advertisement for myself there are other people that provide this as well though I do have knowledge on what merchant users think of products, specific tools and and such, and that can be very beneficial. But, you know, I, I don't really care if it's for me or someone else. Just please, please ask someone who really knows this industry and the product offerings in it. 
how the company that you're considering investing in like stacks up to those. I just think that that's critical there. You know, there's a chance that NSA could have been very successful with those micro merchants and with those small companies, but because they tried to, you know, punch above their weight as so to speak, there was just no chance that that technology was going to be purchased or invested in by these big companies. But I think, I don't know if the CEO knew that or not. And I kind of have a theory that when he went to that large industry conference that he saw all the money that, you know, was possible and all the name brands on people's name tags and that that's when he started doing it. I don't totally know though. The timeline would kind of match up with what else I know, but it doesn't really matter. And I'm certainly not blaming that conference. I, I do think that they're, you know, that, some events should consider, you know, who the responsibility of having companies come in and, and is it enough to say if they're able to spend X, they can come in. I don't know the answer to that. I certainly have weighed in on that uh, with, you know, two of my previous employers, the two that host and organize conferences, but I'm not involved in the money side. So, you know, but I, I do think that that's a conversation to be had at some point or at least to consider you know, I think it's important for investors to understand what type of company will be attracted to the tool, who the target market is. Is it these, you know, billion dollar plus companies? Is it the, you know, hundred million dollar plus companies? Is it the one to five million dollar companies, you know, a year? I think in this case, it like I said, it would have been smaller. I will say that the previous customers did say, oh, I think I said that, that they have a really good, you know, UI and a good kind of easy to see interface. I had also heard that the product hadn't been really innovated in the last four years or changed at all from the engineering perspective. And that seems a little crazy to me because fraud changes very regularly and very often. So it's very important to companies that are big targets that they have systems that are going to adapt. Uh, a lot of times they have, they invest in, you know, technologies with machine learning or AI that um, automatically refresh with refresh their models and don't have to have it manually refreshed by an engineer. So they're adjusting to the behavior of the market. And I know that COVID really messed with several different scoring systems. And so, but I, I don't think that that was the case <laughs> in this case. So another thing to consider is that irresponsible investing does impact the entire industry. It's something that, you know, several companies, like I said, that are vendors in the space that are considering investments, they now, you know, are concerned that companies may not want to because they'll see it as a bigger risk. But also there was something else that kind of happened in the fraud industry with the headlines that were kind of frustrating where, you know, there's obvious irony that the CEO of a fraud startup was arrested and investigated by the SEC for fraud. But it also kind of feels a little bit like we were a laughing stock and nobody likes that. So one other thing I wanted to mention before ending this episode is that when vendors are, so, you know, there's a lot of vendors in the space that are kind of looking at not their exit, but their next step. And so, you know, in some cases that's more investments, you know, series A, B, C, D, et cetera. I just, one I think that had series G was that in fraud? I don't remember. It was a technology company. I can't remember if it was a merchant or a vendor at this point, but they, you know, so usually you're looking at either 
IPO, like going public, you know, after you're getting the investments and you really have it down, you know, an IPO to go public or an acquisition. And I've had several interesting conversations with merchants about vendors being acquired recently, even in the last several years since it started. I think the very first one that I can remember was when Visa bought CyberSource and then Amex bought a certified, but that was like a long time ago. Now there's a lot of companies being acquired. And so I'm not talking about those two specifics that I, that I just mentioned. I'm just talking in general that there have been several merchants in the last several months that have said that they don't like acquisitions. I, I mean, I honestly, and I think that that's true. Anytime there's like big headline about an acquisition, I think vendors are excited. Other people in the industry are intrigued and want to know. But if a merchant uses that company, they feel like that's almost the kiss of death for innovation. That they that innovation goes stagnant once technology is handed over to another company. Because a lot of times that company that was a standalone company is kind of gobbled up by a bigger company, whether it's a card scheme or uh, other fraud providers, et cetera, or other fraud provider. And, you know, that's really because of two things. One, the product stops innovating and, and they don't really see any changes. And that's really frustrating and also very risky for merchants, right? They're counting on their providers to know what's ahead of them before they get there. As one merchant told me today, he's counting on his vendors not to be looking down, but to be looking forward and up and to know what's going to come and be ready for it. And when providers or, or products don't innovate, then that's risky to the merchant and very frustrating, especially if they have long-term contracts in place. The other thing that is, you know, kind of a big deal too, is the fact that a lot of the employees will just cash out very quickly. And I don't blame them. I, I got hired literally 14 days late for the cutoff for getting company stock at one company. And that company was bought out and, you know, all my former coworkers were buying cars or putting a down payment on a house. And I was like, darn it, I should have been hired 14 days earlier, 10 years ago when I worked for that company. So no, I mean, I'm totally jealous. I think that's awesome. But, you know, merchants really, this is a relationship business and they are attached to their account managers that do a good job. And, you know, they have relationships with them. And if the VC or the actually, no, sorry, not the VC, the acquiring company doesn't have it in the paperwork that, you know, employees or at least certain employees have to stay. I mean, I don't blame them. They're going to cast their check and move on to the next thing. But that greatly impacts the merchants because now, you know, chances are they have somebody who has twice as many clients in their portfolio and also, you know, isn't really driven as much as they were prior to the acquisition. So I'm certainly not saying that I think, you know, if your company is planning on being acquired by another one in the near future, not to do it. But I do think it's really important to think about the impact to the end user and to have, you know, some kind of continuity plan for the, the first five years. How are you going to continue to have seamless service for your customers? How are you going to be able to continue a best in class product? Those are all things that I think are, are super important to consider rather than just how big is the check or all of the other conversations around personnel, et cetera, for when a lot of times the redundant departments will be laid off and then the bigger company will kind of take on the other employees, the ones that are left. 
so I just kind of want to throw that out there and, and group that in because that's something that's been coming up a lot. I may be writing an article about it down the line, but I don't want to <laughs> promise that <laughs> right now uh, with just how much is on my plate. So I figured I'd at least mention it here. I think in closing, I... I just want to say that I get it. I mean, fraud and payments online is new and sexy and investable. And that's a really good thing. I mean, I started in this industry of 15 years ago and I, nobody in my life knew what I did and it was really rare and there weren't that many of us in the industry at all. I think at the main conference I went to in 2009, there were 225 or it was under 250 attendees total nationwide and then the female count was like under 20 so we have come a long way and it's crazy to you know see the expo halls go from like 20 companies that you you know know very well to over 100 and some companies come and go there are a few merchants i know who have tchotchke graveyards in their offices i think that's what they called them Basically all the things you get, you know, the swag that you get from conferences with logos on them and such. Uh, there's at least two merchants I know that kind of compete for who has a bigger uh, tchotchke graveyard with all of the um, logos of companies that are no longer. So there certainly have been companies that have come and gone, but this is definitely the most high profile company that is closing in this industry. So, you know, I guess I think the biggest thing is do your due diligence, trust your guts. If something doesn't feel right, it it may not be. Uh, If you're an investor, please do your homework. I'm just going to shout that from the rooftops as much as possible. And I really wanted to just um, close out this episode by sending thoughts and good vibes to the NS8 employees. I know that You had your lives turned upside down two weeks ago. And even though there's been a lot of palace intrigue from the industry into what happened at the end of the day, you know, your lives and your livelihood were impacted by this. And really, you guys were fraud victims. You guys were, you know, victims in a different way than what we would typically consider a fraud victim. But you, you were a victim. You weren't part of the problem. As far as I can tell, I think you know, a lot of you are great people with a lot of great ambitions and I've tried to help where I can in finding new opportunities or making connections. But whether you stay in fraud or not, we, you know, we know that you were the victims of, you know, a fraud scheme. And if anyone has compassion for fraud victims, it's those of us that work in fraud prevention. So with that, just know that we all have a lot of empathy and compassion for you and hope that you land on your feet soon and this has just been a crazy story and I can't wait to watch the documentary when it comes out thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.